Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast. This is a great episode with Chris. I'm a really big fan of his. Unfortunately, my mic wasn't working properly on the episode, so I apologize that my audio isn't great, but it's worth suffering through just to get his answers. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Just Luxon Show on Innovation and Leadership. This week, we've got Chris Moran. Chris, thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So uh, tell people about your your fun job title and where you work. Yeah, I, I am the Vice President General Manager of Lockheed Martin Ventures. So I manage the Venture Fund uh, for Lockheed Martin. For those of you who don't know, Lockheed Martin is a, a rather large, uh, old defense contractor, been in the business since, since the early 1900s. And uh, in t- 2007, they started a venture fund uh, that originally was called the Emerging Technology Fund. Now we call it Lockheed Martin Ventures. Uh, usually or initially focused on larger scale, later stage investments. But when I arrived to the fund in 2016, we got focused on earlier stage, sort of late breaking tech that could complement or support new businesses or new programs that, that were working on within the company. So a bit of a shift that moved to earlier stage. We changed the size of the investments, uh, the number of investments and so on to fit that mold a little bit better. And we've been very active over that time. We have over 62 companies in the portfolio now. Uh, so we're doing on the order of 12 to 15 investments a year, maybe a little higher this year because uh, a lot of the deals came through. Uh, but that's basically what we're about. And broad scope investments, all the areas you'd imagine a company like Lockheed focus on national security would be interested in. Uh, we've probably covered every area to this point. And, and about what size bite size? Like, like what kind of checks are you guys writing? So in the earliest stages, right, at Purdue and Seed, uh, it could be half a million dollars kind of thing. We've got a deal we're closing right now to half a million dollars. Uh, we can go up to in the first check of five or so, but we do keep money in arrears for following on investment. So we keep another 10 plus million dollars uh, to support these companies throughout their, throughout their life or their, or their need for funds life. Uh, we want to be a good investor. We want to be a good partner with other folks that we come in with. So we're not a one and done kind of investor and uh, so far we've been we've been fairly successful with the, the work we've been doing when you think about the mandate and you know let's say that that the ideal uh ceo of a startup is listening today and thinking man i didn't even think to talk to those guys about money give us give us some characteristics of the kind of folks you want to hear from um well like i said broad spectrum so we're doing everything from i think when you look at what we're doing there's sort of been a a real heyday in national security investing because there's a great confluence of where the venture capital space writ large is investing in the types of things that are interesting with artificial intelligence, machine learning, quantum computing, space, my heavens, space in, in the biggest sense possible from satellites to hardware to propulsion, on and on and on. So very, very large uh, spectrum of things that, that we'll look at right now. And as I said, we're trying to look in the earliest stages I think why, you know, why would you come to us? One is we'd probably have some world-class expert in every one of those areas. Uh, There's probably some knowledge that we have that we can pool together with the company or at least advice on how to go attack the market or how to shape yourself to be a great supplier to the government space where where we've been playing for for many, many years. Uh, But we also have people that want to reach out and work with you and figure out how to get your tech incorporated on some of the coolest platforms out there uh, today, including, you know, F-35 and F-22 and F-16 and C-130 and on and on and on, all the things that Lockheed's been doing for the decades that they've been doing this. Thinking about uh, the kind of portfolio companies you're in, what, what's one of the most fun companies you can, 
can tell us about? What What's a story that you were excited that you guys got to uh, invest in? Uh, a really, a really cool one that sort of a little bit uh, a field is a a company that developed a way to track parts from their creation through their life cycle. So it's a part provenance company. Uh, the name of the company is Dust Identity, and what they've done is actually created a chemically created diamonds. So they use a chemical vapor deposition process from my old semiconductor life in the past, and they sprinkle this dust in a very controlled fashion on a part. That dust, those little diamonds, actually have a very unique signature when fluoresced with a laser, um, and they're very small. We're talking nanometer scale diamonds, so the, you know these aren't the ones you put in a ring or anything. Um, but that unique signature is really unclonable. It's a, a, a tagging a capability that makes it impossible to clone. You couldn't peel it off and stick it somewhere else because not only would the dust particles maybe move around a bit, but they might get lost or whatever. And so you can tell, uh, let's say somebody did peel a tag off, you can tell that the signatures changed a little bit. So you know it's been tampered with. So they can provide tamper resistance as well as a guaranteed part provenance. And uh, in the early stages of this company, we we invested in the seed stage. They they barely had anything at that point, but but now they are tracking all the parts on the F thirty five engine line from the manufacturer, which is Rolls Royce for the lift fan, to Parker Hannafin, to uh, you name it. They're tracking all the parts. I think twenty thousand odd parts coming from all over the planet, and they've been doing that with uh, zero error for a good long time. Um, all the part tracking is captured in a blockchain, so you have absolute end-to-end -end security along the, the tracking of the parts. And we, we were really excited to see that company develop from basically nothing uh, to something and actually get deployed within the company in the, in the matter of a, about a year and a half or so uh, to get to that point. No, that's exciting. So I would love to talk about the story of this. So. Um, Thinking, you know, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show as well as investment fund managers. So from the entrepreneur standpoint, you know, there's there's a never-ending curiosity in how to get funded, right? Or how to get the next the next right. round funded. Yep. So let, let's talk about um, this entrepreneur group. Um, when first of all, what did they do that was effective in getting in touch with you in the first place? That that. Uh, was able to get the conversation started. Yeah, there are plenty of ways to get in touch. I think we saw these folks at at an MIT uh, entrepreneurial event. That's where we bumped into them. So I'm an MIT grad and tend to go up there a lot and meet with the folks up there. And we ran into them at that point for this particular one. But, but in a broader sense, how do you get a hold of us? Well, uh, a warm contact is probably the best works in every, if you know somebody I know and they recommend you, obviously that's that's great. But we'll take incoming through our website. We'll take incoming uh, through emails directly to us or, or folks on my team contacted. Uh, we try to attend lots and lots of uh, entrepreneurial pitch events so we can be approached there as well. I mean, we're, we're very open. You know, we, we're, that's the, like I, I mentioned earlier, that is the, the, the lifeblood of any venture fund is deal flow. So just seeing lots of things that helps us understand where the technology is going and the pace of development. Uh, so we'll take in, oh, geez, I think this year we're going to do about 1,500. So we'll take in 1,500 opportunities this year. And like I said earlier, we'll, we'll whittle that down to 15 investments. So the investment return is, you know, less than 1% usually, but uh, 
but we, you know, we try to make sure that we're picking the best ones out of that. And you want to see a lot to get to that point. So we'll, we'll take incoming from any direction, referrals from other venture capitalists, bankers have taken to us and we get a lot of incoming from them as well. Uh, so there's no, you know, one surefire way you, you, you approach us. We're, we're ready, willing, able to help or listen to your story. That's great. And which website is best or what tab or where? Uh, so we, you go to the LockheedMartin.com website and under there is a tab. I think it's called Who Are We? And you'll see the LM Ventures tab under there and then you'll see our website and there'll be a, a submission area in that, that website. Perfect. Um, and what were those guys doing right that, that they made your, you know, that they made the cut? So, uh, you know, we're a very unique brand of venture capital, you would say, right? We're doing national security investing. Um, so that sort of narrows down the field of things we look at and the things we don't look at. Uh, so I think one is, does it, does it have a fit? You know, it, can we foresee this technology being used uh, in the government, whether it's the, the Department of Defense or one of the other departments? Uh, and, you know, once we get past that, once we understand whether this is of strategic value and benefit, uh, to Lockheed and to our, our customer, then we start looking at it like any other investor. Like, is this a good investment? Is this money going to pay off? Are we going to get a return? Is this company going to grow? Is there a point in time when it doesn't need investment dollars to survive? Uh, and so we're looking at all the same features that anyone else would look at at one point, but we've got the strategics screen that would probably narrow what we look at. And then I like to say that, look, our investment uh, return profiles, not like a lot of the big uh, financially motivated funds uh, were strategically motivated. So whereas they're looking for 10X or 100X or 1,000X return on their money, we're probably looking at 5X return, knowing that it's probably going to go lower. We'd like to make sure we do make a return on the money uh, because we're allowed to recycle our money. So if we get investment returns, we can recycle it and reuse it. So it's sort of an evergreen model. Uh, I don't want to get to the point where I run out of cash to do investments. So we do have an investment return focus, but it's not really as high as others. So our scope is narrowed by the things we look at. And then I'd say widened by the, uh, uh, the ability to have a little bit different return profile. Like at this early, early stage, right? You're, you're not buying the, you're not buying a multiple of, uh, of profits like Warren Buffett. What was it about where they were at that you thought, oh, I think these guys have got it. But you know, you've been interviewing a lot of people, you know that the, the magic when I see it is when people take two sort of conventional ideas and stick them together and all of a sudden something extraordinary comes out of it. Like the, the diamond dust one we just talked about, but we recently invested in a company that is 3D printing rocket motors, for instance. Like, oh, why didn't anyone think of that before? You know, it absolutely makes sense, right? There's such a, a variety in the types of propulsion systems people need for the vehicles, why not 3D print it? So you have, you know, build on demand instead of big vats and tubes that you're, you're casting uh, rocket motor cakes in. Uh, and like, geez, so it's stuff like that. You know, that's the first thing, the wow factor. Did, did they think, take things, maybe even obvious things, but string them together in a way that made a real difference, right? That, that kind of thing is what really gets your attention. If you get that, Hook in, then we'll look at the the business model and the business plan under that. And sometimes, uh, particularly with space properties, sometimes the business model isn't really there. So you say, oh, this is really cool, but how are they going to sell that? And who is the customer? Oh, there's one customer. And you know, those are always the problematic ones, right? And you're trying to figure, wow, that's really important tech to, 
to bring to market, but there isn't really going to be a syndicate of investors there. How do we, how do we help those companies? What can we do? And, uh, you know, then we start leveraging SBIR dollars and other things, see if they can get a real go at it. Uh, and we we'll, we'll, we may come in from some, for some capital there. If, uh, again, if the tech looks really strategic to us and so on, but, but those are really the hardest ones, right? They, they look really cool. I've done something really magnificent, but there's really a very small market on the other side. And you're like, oh, that's too bad. Really would love to see that happen, but it's probably not going to make it. And, and for people not familiar with SBIR dollars, can you talk about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a government program. It's been in place since the 80s, I believe. So over 40 years of operation. Uh, it's run by the Small Business Administration. The SB is the Small Business Administration. Um, and it's a program where either the government is soliciting topics and recently they started what's called an open topic submission. So ideas can go chase dollars versus problems chasing dollars, which is the way the government had the program set up. But under a gentleman named Will Roper a few years ago in the Air Force, he created this open topic forum, which allows somebody with a, a great idea to approach the government themselves and say, look. If I just had a few dollars, you know, I could show you that that this would work. And uh, can he give me a chance? And they've done something on the four four to six hundred of those programs over the last couple of years, which is pretty extraordinary. Up to that point, uh, the government across all the agencies and every agency, I believe, has the ability to do a, a cyber grant uh, does several thousand a year. So I think it's up to four thousand a year, and it's it's in the order of. $3 billion. It's a substantial amount of money they're making available in that fund. Typical phase one grants are anywhere from tens of thousands of dollars up to a million. And then phase two, maybe a million to three. And then phase three is much larger than that. But there are other programs called OTA or other transaction authority where the dollars can go up to, we, we've heard of a billion dollar OTA being let recently. And then the Air Force started a program I think a little over a year ago called strategic financing, uh, which is really interesting because they will only get financing if the company is able to raise money for another source. So uh, they, they'll give up to 30, I think up to $30 million if you at the same time can raise $30 million from other investors. And we've heard of a couple of awards going out at that level. So the government really has made a lot of capital available to people who are trying to get a foothold in working with government customers. And, and is that related to AFWorks at all, or is that completely separate? AFWorks uses the authorities under the SBIR program to do its work. So yeah, AFWorks is sort of the a front uh, front face of the cyber program for the U.S. Air Force. Well, I want to go. I want to go back to this selection process. So, um, you know, it's it's such a uh, it's such an interesting thing trying to predict the future. Will will these guys make it or not? Right. And, um, and there's so much of the time that speculation like that can be gambling, like when most people buy cryptocurrency. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> right? It's just pure, pure emotion based on, I think that other people's emotions are going to be higher later. Right? Right. Um, and yet, you look, at, you look at the Sequoias, you look at Andreessen Horowitz, or different folks, and like, there are people who it is in their circle of competence to to do venture capital in a, right. in a predictable way. You know, like I, I got to take that, this has got to be 12 years ago, I took the Harvard class, the executive education class on private equity and venture capital. And Josh Lerner was like, he's showing us some stats. He's like, you know, I think 
you guys all need to be a little less proud of yourselves just for being in the industry. I was a private equity CEO at the time. It's like, if you look at the real math, uh, the whole industry loses everything that the winners gain plus 2%. So essentially, as an industry, you guys are a tax on today's investors. Your management fees are a tax, right? So think about like how much the great venture capitalists make. The rest of you lose all of that plus 2%. So don't pat yourself on the back that you finally got out of investment banking and now you're in a fund. Like you did not make it. You still have to, you still have to think, right? And so I'm fascinated by the folks who, you know, like yourself, have spent decades in the space and build a track record of doing more than guessing because there's a lot of people who are, they're so proud to have the business card and I'm not sure they have all the mental rigor that, uh, that some folks do. It, it is an interesting, interesting business, you know, People ask me, remember that TV show, Silicon Valley, that was on several years ago? And people always say, ah, that's, yeah. a, that's a comedy, right? I said, eh, it's closer to documentary than, than comedy. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is the Wild West sometimes. And, and you're right. Uh, I think a, a venture firm, I forgot the name, did, did a study probably a dozen years ago and looked back a dozen years and said that something like 90% of all venture funded companies fail and fail is don't return capital. So if you gave them a dollar, they gave you a 50 cents back kind of thing. That's a fail, right? Well, who would, who would go to a bank investing money knowing that they're only going to give them a fraction back. Um, and so, you know, it is hard, just like you said, that most people lose money. I, I look at the, the CalPERS data, for instance, every year, they do investments in over 300 venture funds and the average return is basically the cost of capital, right? They're, it's a little bit better than putting it in a, a, a savings account sometimes. So it's not, you only hear about the big wins, right? You, you just hear about that all the time and that takes all the headlines, but the real sort of rock breaking work of, of venture capital writ large are, are these companies that you're, you're trying to find and trying to make sure that they're, they're good with the money that you give them and generate a, hopefully an income and or a sustainable business, right? How do you get this sustainability? And when I started in this space in 2005 or so, people would always ask, Hey, you know, where's your, what's your break even point? When are you going to be cash flow break even? I don't even hear that anymore in conversation. Maybe it's going to come back. I think the times that we're in now, people are getting focused a bit more on the bottom line as, as opposed to growth at all costs. And maybe some sanity will come back. But to your point, I've always stuck to how do you, you know, are you building a bit a business? Um, are you building it to sell or are you trying to build a substantial business? Are you putting the right uh, controls in place? Are you putting the right infrastructure in place? Are you hiring the right people? Are you focused on the right market? Those are the, the typical questions that you have to ask. And my life before venture capital, I was, a, I was an operator. Right? I was a general manager of several semiconductor businesses. And uh, I had the hiring and firing responsibility, the inventory managers. I had all that stuff. And so you learn stuff when you've got that, when you're shouldering that around, when you've got 300 people that work for you and a half a billion dollars of inventory and you've got faced with uncertainty in the near-term outlook, you know, you've got to make very, very tough decisions about how to survive in that. So I've sort of lived through that through my own experience. I, I haven't run a startup company, but I, I feel for these folks who are in those roles and what they have to do. And we try to look at these companies in that role. Hey, life is great now. You're raising capital. People are willing to give it to you. You just need a slight downturn when people are going to apply the brakes and they're going to tighten up like we're in right now. 
um, and they're going to ask you, hey, what, you know, how much more money do you need to get this business to the point where it's either going to sustain itself or we can sell it? And those questions aren't, weren't asked for the, like the last two years. All of a sudden they're being asked and now people are like, whoa, what do I do? You know, how do I do that? And you, you see the, the same playbook, the, the skinny down, let's uh, tighten our belts, let's cut back on some of those extra people we hired, let's slow our spending. Let's not build that new office building that we wanted to do, you know, and, and so those are sort of the, the lessons that we always get back to, uh, after these exuberant times that we're in, but those are the lessons that, that I, and I, you know, have my team apply when we're looking at any company, are they focused on the goal? Are they, do they have good talent, good capability? Is there a market that they're addressing? Is it going to grow or is it, and in particularly in the national security space, is it, is it one customer? Um, that's, that's awful. Cause that, that customer, you know, is a great customer, but it's a fickle customer at the same time. And a lot of companies have been burned by, uh, you know, the government customers saying, we want to buy this, but, oh, you know, I can't get, we don't have the appropriation. We don't have the authority. It's going to take a year. Well, what does that company do during all that time while they're waiting for that to happen? Um, and that, those are the challenges that they have to face, right? Yeah. So. Okay, I've got an example. I, I want to, I'll get your feedback. So uh, I, there's a CEO friend of mine named Dan who's been helping us out on Child Rescue over the years. He's got, a, he's got a business right now where they basically have some proprietary ways to look at social media sentiment and, and identify folks who are more susceptible to things or not. And so um, that moved from the marketing world over to State Department, some other folks where they're essentially working with embassies around the country, around the world saying like, yeah. trying to help promote democracy, promote democracy and things like this. And they've got some proprietary ways to, to really get a sense of like looking through people's public profiles of like, how do we do non-hacking, non-black hat stuff to, but, but to kind of identify like who, who's ideal to, you know, who's, who, who's interested in democracy. Like, right you know, kind of like find your people kind of a thing, right? Right, right. With that not being hardware, is that clearly outside of your space and, and they shouldn't be talking to you or knowing that they're getting more government agencies interested in becoming clients, they should talk to you? It's a great question. And I actually had someone ask me about that exact opportunity this morning, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> and that the it's kind of a nuanced answer. Yes, we're obviously interested in that. Uh, capability, but not in a in a prime sort of way. Um, dealing with information, information sentiment is vastly important to the State Department and the intelligence agencies, right? And neither mm -hmm. of those are our main customers, right? We have, obviously have a relationship mm -hmm. with them on the intelligence side. We're we're basically helping them with satellite data collection and things like that. But as far as on the ground. Uh, type things were we're not as big in there, and if anyone on the line wants to correct me, let me know. But from where where I sit, I don't I don't see that. I don't see the pull from those groups within our our company to do that. Though I know that we had at one time, or maybe a dozen years ago, an activity where we were doing just that, and folks were pretty pretty jazzed about the the capability that they had put together. But that wouldn't be a primary for us. But I know the intelligence agencies, the folks at at Incutel, this is this is what they love. I mean, th this kind of thing. If you can take what they call open source intelligence and turn it into real value, and if this technology can do it, they'd be all over it. They, they would. I would go straight to them with that, that tech. 
this this idea, like those guys with the diamonds or, or any of the other 15 folks you, you funded last year, when you're sitting there, my guess is that it has something to do with pattern recognition. This idea of like, who are you going to place your bets with? Because I think about sales. Like, you know, when I sold, like I was doing government sales when I was at, when I was at uh, the Arbinger Institute and I told you I was the director of their special operations command intelligence practice. I got, I got one of the military clients to give us a, you know, go from a $60,000 order to a $2.8 million order, right? I was very proud of myself, right? Yeah, well, I had lots of other folks I was talking to that we got no order out of, you know what I mean? And it is like, it is this sport of like, you make a lot of friends, you, you, you talk to a lot of folks, and some buy and some don't. But there is this like sense of pattern recognition where you can get a sense of like, well, if I do enough of these activities, and I watch for these signs, that's who I double down on. And even the ones I double down on are still not all going to close. But, you, you know, like, I was thinking, like, in some ways, the stats are different. Outbound sales, the stats can be similar. But it's not just gambling. It's, it's pattern recognition, even though you can't tell which one's going to close. Do you see it similar or different at all? No, I, I you know, this, this is a totally an industry of pattern recognition, right? But... I don't know if that's necessarily the recipe for success. And a couple anecdotes in that. You, you all okay. read the book Moneyball, or saw the movie. And I remember the, that one scene where the scouts are around the table and they say, oh, you know, Joe Blow, we, we got to get him on the team because he looks like a ball player. Like, what? And then I think Brad Pitt was Billy Bean and saying, well, what are his stats? And, you know, and the stats are terrible, but he looks like a ball player. Like, oh, okay, great. Well, that's yeah, how, we're selling. We're not selling blue jeans here, right? That's right. That's right. But like, okay, but that happens in the venture space. And then another anecdote: I just last week I saw Google Ventures abandoned uh, their attempt to, you know, use AI to make investment decisions. And that was one of the focus of them: is can we use all this patterning, right? Because that's what AI is: it's pattern uh, recognition to determine which investments are going to be good or bad. And there was an article just a week ago where they said they were abandoning it, that it, it didn't work. There's too many variables. We can't capture everything in there. And I think that's the risk is that you, you take a pattern and you try to map it into a different space for whatever reason. Maybe this was a great entrepreneur in this area, but you put them in a different space and all of a sudden they're still a great entrepreneur, but now they're completely out of water. This isn't a a domain they're familiar with, and you can't apply the same lessons across the board. So you really have to look at everything sort of objectively the first time. Okay, yes, they're a successful entrepreneur. Okay, great. That that means that a lot of the the first-time CEO problems we all deal with probably won't be there. So that's great. That's less headache. They're going to know what to do. If they're challenged or have a setback. They're probably going to respond the right way. But do they necessarily know how to attack this market? They've never worked and they don't know about it. They don't have a customer really. So you're like, okay, that's a negative, a positive. So you're looking at all those things. You have to look at all those things and you have to look at them objectively. And it, it's kind of funny when you see, you know, with the, with the Elon Musk Twitter buy, they, they released his tweet stream or his text stream and looking at some of the, the top names in venture capital, just throwing money at him because he's a successful guy right? and he's probably a good risk. He's got a track record of success, but you know, maybe not, you know, <laughs> you know, what does he know about Twitter other than he's a very active tweeter himself? Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. You know, as you're thinking there, I'm thinking about surfing. So mm -hmm. I, I moved to Southern California 
but I was surfing first and thought I'd find a job later, right? And newlyweds, and we moved to Huntington Beach, California, because we had heard it had the most consistent waves in continental U.S., and she didn't want to live where it was cold, so I figured if we're not snowboarding, we're surfing, right? And then right. later, I get headhunted over to, to city and get into investment banking. But in surfing, there's like, there's all these things you do to prepare. There's, you know, there's all the conditioning and the, and the swimming and wave spotting and stuff. But like, you have to surf the wave that you get instead of the wave that you wish was there. Right. Like, my guess, and I want you to correct me here, is it's like, you, there's, this pat, there's these pattern recognition, there's these ideas, there's these principles, but it has so much to do with like the real live person in front of you and are they looking you in the eyes and, and how quick did they respond and how, in, you know, how emphatically did they respond and is that an indication of arrogance or confidence and is like, like that it's like surfing the wave of like the real life situation that all these variables shift because you're dealing with humans or, or how do you see it differently? No, 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 you want, you want some of that. Like if you, you expect a certain degree of arrogance, right? Because this person in front of you is trying to do someone hopefully no one else has done before, right? Which means probably the the end goal has never been proven before either, or the market's never been. So you have to expect that, and they have to have a very strong internal belief that I can make it happen, right? That I am the person that, that can make it happen. So there's a certain degree of arrogance uh, you expect, but they also need to have. Right, because they're going to face adversity. They're going to face hundreds of people telling them no way, never going to happen, and they have to have, have strong enough commitment to that to to make sure that they want to go. And and you 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 just learn the entrepreneur type. I mean, they're entrepreneurs, and then they're sort of like turn the crank business people. And you want to put money, you know, particularly in aspirational things behind entrepreneurs because they're gonna they're not going to give up. They're just going to keep working it. But then there comes a time in the in a company's life a little bit later on, they're in a growth phase, they're they've acquired customers. Now they have to meet expectations, they have to have a, a strong focus on cost reduction or or quality control, or and you need a different type of person to be there, maybe to complement the original person or ultimately replace them uh, at that time. So depending, you know, where I'm investing, I'm looking for that, that aggressive aspirational entrepreneur. But not over to the, I'm so committed to this, I can't see the potential problems or pitfall. You want them to have a sense of, yeah, I, I believe this thing happen. It's going to be wonderful if I make it happen. But they're not so oblivious to the things that they have to overcome to get there, right? You want to make sure there's a certain degree of uh, humility, I guess, in, in not all hubris, but a good blend of humility as well in that aspiration of, to really make sure they have the tools to go forward. I'm not blind to these things. I know they're there. I'm going to work on them and I'm going to make it, make it happen. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. Well, uh, tell us about one of the other cool technologies of, of one of your portfolio companies. We talked about the, the 3D printed rocket motors company called Crossbow. Um, these guys have been moving very, very fast. I actually launched a, a rocket just a few weeks ago. Uh, successful early launch. Um, you know, now they're going to try to scale up and and grow their business as rapidly as possible. And it it happened initially. We're like, oh man, this is too defensey, because who's the customer for solid rocket motors, right? It's the the government mostly. Um, but as we we started digging into it, we started realizing that the supply chain for these things is pretty thin, um, and and not great. And so having additional suppliers is probably a good thing. 
and the customer will probably give them lots of opportunity to succeed or fail. I mean, hopefully they succeed, uh, but, and that seems to be what's playing out. The customer's leaning in and saying, look, we want you to bid on this and bid on this and bid on this. And all of a sudden there's a lot of traction to what's going on uh, with what they're doing. So we think that even though it's a very, very focused defense investment, we're really mostly trying to do dual use because we don't want to be the only money in these deals. But when we got into the deal, there was already other money in the deal more from more financially minded folks than we were. So we felt very comfortable getting into that and, and working with those companies. And, and it turns out that a lot of the opportunities revolve around programs that maybe we actually had already. So there's a close collaboration between this company and the folks inside the company, uh, trying to get them in a position where they can compete effectively to be a, a supplier to us and ultimately to the government customer behind it. So that, that's a cool one. And that's moved very fast. Um, from, uh, you know, we didn't move fast from when we met him because after we met him and talked to them, Lockheed decided they wanted to buy Aerojet Rocketdyne, which would have been, you know, directly competing with that. So when that came out, we actually stopped our diligence and, and waited uh, until that ended. And we know Lockheed didn't end up buying them. And then we, uh, we contacted them right away and we closed the deal within a couple of months after, after getting that to happen. So that was really exciting that we were able to do that. Uh, and basically, you know, why we were trying to buy Aerojet was to increase the supply base of solid rocket motors. So if we found another way to do it, we're, we're pretty confident that, uh, this will help us do that as well. Uh, so that was that one, another company that we invested in, uh, six years ago is a company called Terran Orbital. They just had a SPAC IPO uh, in March, but Terran Orbital makes small satellites, uh, bigger now from when we started with them, they, they were starting with about 50 kilograms. Now they're doing up to 500 kilograms, which is a pr pretty substantial satellite, uh, but they've become the branded provider of small satellites to Lockheed Martin. If you go on our website, you can see the LM50 bus um, that's provided to us by them. And we uh, outfit it with mission packages and sensor suites and other things. And, and we, uh, we sell those to the government and NASA and so on. Uh, for missions that they're running. So they've become the provider of that technology to Lockheed and ultimately through to the government through working with us. Maybe shifting gears a bit, I'm, I'm interested, um, you know, this is an industry that can chew people up and spit them out, right? And, uh, you know, having been in it here for, for coming on two decades pretty quick, um, and, and obviously uh, the position you've got at, at such a well-known place, um, when you think about the success you've achieved, I mean, there's, there's a lot of folks that would like to do something as cool as you that yeah. haven't been able to, uh, to, to get chosen, to, to win those, that coveted spot. What do you think that you've done that others haven't? In this job or how I got to this job, or, or you want me to answer both? Oh, Liba, when you, when you think about your success in life and, and getting to do something this cool, um, what, what do you attribute, so, you know, what are some of the principles that work for you? What do you attribute your success to? I think one, you know, the biggest thing is an open mind to really approach every new thing that you see with, with really an open mind. You have to almost be blank. Like we talked about the pattern matching. You got to not have that to start. You got to listen to what's going on. You have to understand it. And then you have to be able to have an agile mind to think about how does this fit? You know, because we're a strategic investor. So we're trying to figure out where does this fit in the grand scheme of things we're looking at? Is there an opportunity to work with this company or do they have a product or service that we'd love to, to buy as a, you know, as a, as a, 
uh, customer of their tech and so on, or are they bring, or they have just knowledge that we'd love to pool with other things that, that we're working on. So it took a little while to understand where we fit, but I, I think what's aided me there is a couple of things. I've had a very, before I got to this role, I had a very, very diverse career. I was in engineering, I was in manufacturing, I was in operations, I, I was a design engineer, a product division general manager, a product manager. Uh, I was head of marketing. I was head of strategy, uh, you know, on and on and on. I just had a very diverse career, saw different things from different perspectives, from different levels. I, I worked at the board level. I worked at the exec level. Um, so I'd just been exposed to tons of different stuff. Um, and I'd been kind of the, 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 the guy who got things started at my previous company in a number of different roles. So even though I, I can't claim it was a startup company, uh, I think any of you have done it when you're starting up a new venture inside a large company, the, the large company produces lots of antibodies to try to kill you. So you have to be very nuanced and entrepreneurial to make that happen. I got to do that several times in, in the last company I worked at. So I think one of the things it's given me this tremendous perspective on how to look at these things from the shoes that those folks are wearing, but also from the diverse roles and experience I've, I, I've had in my, in my life. So I think that was good. Um, people ask me, well, how did you get into venture? You know, it was that a choice. And uh, oddly enough, it was in my previous company, uh, I was running a business unit that we got to the point where the investment in the business unit was gonna exceed the size of the market by, by several factors. And so, you, wow, when do you do that? Well, you do that if you think you can dominate that market for many, many years to pay back the investment you're going to do in it. And we couldn't do that. We couldn't do that. So I actually recommended to, to close the business and save the service part, which was very lucrative. And we ended up doing that. We, we saved uh, the service part of the business would turn into about $300 million a year revenue. Um, but the CEO came to me and said, Hey, uh, you basically just fired yourself. What do you want to do? And I'm like, uh thought about it. And he actually said, well, we want to start this venture fund. Uh, would you be willing to, to run over there and run it? And I said, I have no idea what that is, but I'd be glad to start. And that started, you know, almost 20 years ago and uh, met lots of amazing people who helped me along the way, read tons of things, tried to learn as much as I could uh, because I was starting from scratch, right? And I'm an engineer by training. I'm not uh, a finance person by training, though I was general manager in a number of businesses. So I learned that through that process, but, um, you know, learning what was good, looking at what people did right, what people did wrong and taking that forward and trying to teach the folks that work with me, the same thing. It's been, uh, just a magnificent experience for a tech geek like me. Uh, I'm always, you know, wide eyed and bushy tail every time something new and cool walks through the door. Um, uh, and so it, this has been the perfect role for me. I've even had execs come up to me and say, you've got the best job at the company. I said, yeah, don't, don't tell anyone because I really think it is. <laughs> um, so it, it's just been a pleasure doing this and where we do good by the companies we invest in. I'm, I'm always very, very motivated by that and, and happy to see that. And uh, it, it's just been a wonderful career at this point uh, doing that work. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, um, let's do this again. If, if people want to connect with you or they want to find out more, where are the best places online? Our website, um, the other, you know, we try to attend most of the prestigious venture uh, conclaves and pitch fests. We, we do a lot 
uh, of the AFWorks activities that they do. They they have a number of pitch fests. We try to attend on that. We're a member of the the Starburst community. So uh, those uh, some of the incubators, and we're very active with TechStars and a few other folks. So they're always trying to bring investors in, sort of at those last pitch days and so on. So those are great things to do. But the other way is a warm contact. As I said, if you know somebody at Lockheed. Uh, please have them reach out. If you know someone on the team, reach out. Uh, it's a lot better to, when we get a thousand opportunities or more a year, it's good to have that little extra spice on there. Oh, I knew somebody or they know somebody to get it to the top of the list. That'll, that'll make sure that we take a quick look at it and give you feedback. Is this one for us or not? And if it is, then we'll, we'll probably dig in and do the diligence we need to make the investment or not. That's great. Um, well, thanks for making time for this. This has been great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation, Jess. You bet. Okay, bye, everyone.